0: So happy Valentine's Day! <laughs> you know, on Christmas I so I say Merry Christmas. Everybody goes Merry Christmas. And on Easter I go He is risen. Everybody goes He is risen indeed. Valentine's Day I go Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> So Valentine's Day, some people apparently look forward to it and other people not so much, right? Um, It kind of all depends on your relationship status, whether Valentine's Day is an exciting day for you or not. Um, But isn't it awesome to know that as followers of Christ, His love is never failing. His love is never ending. His love is never changing. His love is not based upon how lovely we are. His love is based upon Him his character and his his nature to love us. And and so as followers of Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's Valentine's Day or not, we always have reason to celebrate. Uh, It's a pretty awesome thing because um, love of God is steadfast. The love of God is sure. And it doesn't depend on any of the things that this world's definition of love depends upon. So we all have reason to celebrate. And we talked about that last week. We, We were talking about the love of God and we tried, to, we tried to really sort of zero in and say, you know, when the, when the Bible uses this Greek word agape, which is translated as love, it's a very specific word. It means something, something much more than we usually mean when we use the word love, whether we're talking about loving French fries or whether we're talking about loving the weather that we're having, or even if we're talking about loving our spouse or our children, we're still not talking about the depth of love that Jesus is talking about, when the Word of God says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a whole different kind of a deal, and we tried to talk about that last week and sort of define that Greek word agape and and get us a sense of what does it look like when God loves us like that. Um, And yet, agape is this amazing, amazing kind of love. so, last week and this week we 're talking about love. This has been something i 've been thinking a lot about i 've been studying passages in the Bible on love, thinking a lot about love. What is it I want to say about love? What is it that is so unique and, and distinctive about god 's love, and how can that be lived out in us? And so, this week, as I worked on my message uh, for today, um, it came down to Friday afternoon, and I was in my office on Friday afternoon, which is an unusual thing because usually I take fridays off, but uh, I was at a conference the rest of the weekend, so I didn't have time to take Friday out this week. So I'm in the office on what should be my day off, and I'm working on getting this sermon finished, and, and I'm typing up these ideas about love and how awesome God's love is and all that kind of stuff. And I'm tired and by the end of the day, and now I have to leave and go to a conference that's beginning at night. And so I made the brilliant decision at 545 to uh, get on this 210 freeway eastbound, right? Now, <laughs> no, no, understand, I just spent the last three hours in my office just going over the nuance of God's love and how we're supposed to have that same kind of love. And then I get on the freeway, and you know what it's like. You go up here to, to uh, Las Lomas or whatever that is, or Highland, and you, or what is it? Mount Olive. Mount Olive, thank you. Two out of three ain't bad. Anyway, I, I get to Mount Olive. I turn on to the freeway, and then there's this long wait on the curve, and I, get, and I get on. And it's that thing where everybody's merging, right, and the two freeways are together right there. So it's always bottleneck there. And, um, you know, so what do you do? You just put your blinker on and wait your turn, and somebody lets you in, and you get in. And um, as we're going, every time there's a... I got my left blinker on, and every time there's a, a gap between me and this little black car back here... Um, the lady driving the car just speeds up. And so, okay, so I can leave my blinker on and wait for a little while longer, a little gap, and then as I start to go, she just speeds up again. And she does this three times. And I'm thinking, well, what do you want me to do? Just drive off the off side of the freeway? Or, what, you know, what is it you want me to do? Is this the most difficult thing in the world to just let there be a gap so that every car can get in? And, and I'm sitting here thinking about how lovely this young woman is <laughs> and how much I appreciate her. And, and finally, you know, as is often the case, finally um, things change and the la- her lane slows down and my little side lane speeds up. And I end up getting on in front of her. And, and well, by now, she's changed lanes to the second lane. And I change lanes. And I look in my in my rearview mirror. And there she is behind me, right as the traffic is starting to move. And my first thought is, I should just totally step on the brake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was my first thought. I'm thinking, this stupid lady, I'm going to make her pay. And so I thought, I'm going to. I'm going to just slow down, and whenever she goes around me, I'm going to change lanes and stay in front of her. And this whole this scenario going on in my head, it took like three seconds to think all of these pictures of how I could make her get home like three hours later than she wanted to, how great that would feel. And then as I was just going through that little quick picture in my head, it was as if God's, God's word just spoke to me and said, love is patient, love is kind. And I just went, oh God, you have to be kidding me. Like, you you actually expect me to apply your word even in things like Friday afternoon traffic. And what's the answer to that question? Does he? Yeah, he does. And so, you know, love is difficult sometimes. Love's a decision that you make again again and again and again and again and again and again to love your friends, to love your family, to love strangers who happen to be keeping you from getting on the freeway to love your enemies. These are decisions that you have to make again and again and again. And we talked last week about how the one thing this kind of love is not based on is feelings. So it can't be that when you feel like it, you're going to treat people with love. Love is an action. It's something that you do. It's a decision that you make and then you carry out. And so this agape love that the Bible talks about, it's an indispensable foundational quality of the Christian life. It is the most obvious sign that you are a Christian and Jesus is real. Love in your life. And in John 13, 35, Jesus said to his disciples, they will know you are my followers by your love. It's it's the big sign. It's the neon sign that is supposed to float over the heads of every Christian And it's supposed to say, listen, this is a follower of Jesus. You can tell by the way she loves people. You can tell by the way he treats people. This is a follower of Jesus. They'll know by your love. 1 Corinthians 13.13 says that one of the three great pillars of the Christian life is love. But it doesn't just say it's one of the three. Faith, hope, love. It says it is the Greatest. And finally, that brings us to 1 Corinthians 13, because how can you possibly preach even a two-week series on love without getting to 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter? So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 13, and and while you're turning there, before we read those verses together, let me um, begin with a warning, because most of us are so familiar with the passage that we are going to read together today, the first part of 1 Corinthians 13 where it gives us this definition of God's love and the love that we're to have for one another. Most of us are so familiar of it with it, having read it ourselves, having heard it preached upon, having been to weddings where it was read, having seen it on little cross-stitched pillows and all of these kinds of things. We're so familiar with this passage that there is a danger that faces us this morning, and the danger is that it all becomes like white noise. You know what I mean? It's like, like you know, when you have a... a uh, a baby that can't sleep, they, they say, put some white noise in the room, little, just a speaker that goes, just at a low level, and you don't even notice that it's happening, right? You hear it when it first starts. Pretty soon, you're going about things, and you're hearing it, but you're not noticing it, right? And, and that's the danger that we face every time we come to a passage in Scripture Something like John 3.16 or 1 Corinthians 13 or one of these passages that almost everybody has heard, whether they were raised in the church or not, is that it becomes white noise to us and that we think we get it. Um, But we need to be careful to keep our ears open this morning because this is not white noise. This is, in fact, really important stuff. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hopefully I gave you enough time to get there. And I want to just read to you verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I, possess all, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, I want to just stop and talk about this for a second because we need to get this. He is saying, listen, I don't care how big of a spiritual giant you think you are. I don't care how impressed everybody else is with you because of the gifts that God has given to you. This is something that happens to pastors and public speakers all the time. There's this assumption that because your gift is a public gift and that you're up in front of people that you must be a real spiritual superstar. But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of gifted speakers in the church who are up there in front of people and they're wowing people with their sermons and they're wowing people with their insights and they're wowing people with their great stories and their little punchlines and all that kind of stuff. And yet when you watch their lives this love that is talked about just doesn't seem to be there. And Paul says, I don't care if you can speak every language known to man and languages that are not known to man. I don't care if you know heavenly languages and you could speak all of these impressive languages because if you don't know, in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's addressing that issue with the Corinthian church because there's all this controversy in the church over people who speak with tongues, and he's saying, listen, listen, Um, that seems like such a big deal because people go, wow, that's cool. But I'm here to tell you, I don't care what languages you speak in. I don't care if you prophesy and God speaks directly through you. It doesn't matter if you have all wisdom and all knowledge and all training. It doesn't matter if you have the entire Bible memorized cover to cover, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It doesn't matter if you don't have love. You're just flapping your gums. This is huge. Because all those things we talked about, things like ministry and teaching the Word of God and having knowledge and studying God's Word, those are important things. And he's saying they pale in comparison to this essential thing, which is the issue of love. And so there's a lot of ways to seem super spiritual. But if you have no love... God's not there. And it all adds up to nothing. And this is really the same thing we looked at last week that Jesus said to the Ephesian church, in Revelation chapter two, right? He's like, you guys have your doctrine down. You guys have your practice down. As a church, you are so impressive, but I'm here to tell you that I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You have left your first love. And unless you come back and make love the central theme of who you are as a church, I'm gonna wipe you off the face of the earth and you will no longer exist as a church because I have no use, God says, for a church without love. It's a huge Huge deal. And so this is interesting because we don't think that we don't tend to think this way. And, and we often will excuse a lack of love in someone's life if they have impressive gifts that we like. We gotta be careful about this because here's the thing: God never excuses a lack of love. I mean, you, you just can't read the Bible and go, it's okay with God if you don't love. God is very clear about that. So this is a huge deal. Everything in the Christian life revolves around love. God's love for us, our love for him. The scripture says, for we love him because he what? First loved us. So it begins with God's love for us and then our love for him, which reciprocates. And then it gets into our love for one another and the body of Christ, other Christians, our brothers and sisters who were committed to supporting and loving and caring for. And it goes on to even people that we don't know. And it goes on to people that we know and can't stand. And God says, your love is supposed to flow out to all of those people, so this is a huge deal. Love is not optional for the Christian life. If you don't get anything else today, get that. You don't have a choice. Either you're a follower of Jesus and love is poured out into your life and through your life, Or, if there is no love poured out into your life and through your life, whatever label you may wear, whatever membership you may hold, wherever you may spend your time on Sunday mornings, you are not a follower of Jesus. That's what the scripture says. Where God is, love is. And where love isn't, God ain't there. People often wonder why so many people in our culture don't understand the message of the gospel. And I want, to, I want to submit to you the possibility that maybe it's not always about the dullness of their hearts and maybe sometimes it's about our lack of love. And therefore the gospel makes no sense. You can be right on all the big issues, but if you don't love the people who are wrong on all those issues, then you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It just doesn't matter. So the whole point of agape is not how we feel about the people that God has called us to love. The whole point of agape is how we act toward them. And if you're not sure that that makes sense, and you you can't really wrap your mind around the idea of loving people that you don't feel warmly toward, um, or or loving in a way that you don't want to love in that given moment, um, what is the strongest example in the history of the world? What moment in the history of the world is the strongest example of love? the cross. Has there ever been a more beautiful example of love than the cross? A God who is so great, mind you, not that he stays distant from his people, but a God who is so great that he refuses to stay distant from his people and comes to serve us By dying on the cross, there is no more beautiful picture of love in the history of the world than Jesus Christ hanging on the cross as the people shout at him, if you're so great, if you're really God, if you're so impressive, show us by coming off the cross, and they're taunting him to come off the cross, and he refuses to come off the cross, not because he's not God, but because he is God. That's the greatest moment of love you will ever hear about. But let me ask you a question. Did Jesus feel like going to the cross? Was Jesus looking forward to going to the cross? All you have to do is, is read the passages in Scripture about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the cross, right? Right before they come and arrest him and they take him off to crucify him, what is he doing? He's praying. And he is so filled with, um, with pressure that his blood capillaries begin to burst and mix with sweat, and he begins to sweat drops of blood. He is under that kind of pressure. He's not enjoying himself in the least. In fact, so much so that he cries out to the Father and says, if there is any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And yet, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he gets up and goes willingly to the cross. It's not because he felt like it. That's because he loves. And agape is about living above your feelings. It's about living above what comes naturally. Love puts the interest of others above our own. I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, just a couple of, few pages to the right, right after Ephesians. (coughs) Excuse me. Go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse three, I want us to pick it up. This is what Paul tells us. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, with humility of of mind, Regard one another as just as important as yourself. What does it say? More important. That we're to to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to describe how Jesus humbled himself, went to the cross to pay the price for our sin. That's what love is about. It's about sacrifice for others. Jesus sets another example. Go to the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John chapter 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, front part of your New Testament. John chapter 13. um, What's going to happen in John 13 is the famous story that we're going to reenact in just a few minutes as we share in the Lord's Supper where he's, he's going to pass out the bread and the wine and he's making this new covenant with them and they're having communion together. And before that happens, what does Jesus do? He washes their feet, right? But before he washes their feet, look at John chapter 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, and it begins to tell us how he got on his knees and began to scrub the dirty feet of his servants, right? It's a well-known story. But don't miss the introduction to the story. Because the question comes to us, if we're really talking about uh, a love that is sacrificial, if we're talking about putting others' needs above ourselves, if we're talking about not insisting on our own way, but being a blessing to other people, if we're really serious about that, and we see this example of this in John 13, where Jesus washes their feet, and then of course goes to the cross, which is the whole point, right? Then we got to ask ourselves, based on our own experience, why don't we see this more in our own lives? Why isn't this common? Why isn't this normal? Why don't people fall all over themselves just trying to get to opportunities to serve other people, to sacrifice, to give? Why is this such a struggle for us? And why did Jesus seem to have no trouble humbling himself, even though he was the most worthy one to be honored? It's found in these first four verses. Look again at verse one. Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. He understood what was happening. All through the book of John, it says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then we get to chapter 13, and it says, guess what, the hour has come. This is it. This is the time. He's going to go to the cross. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to experience and what he's going to go through. And then if you go down to verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, you could just stop right there at the end of verse 3 and then put the rest of the book of John as as the tale onto that introduction. Why was Jesus able to wash their feet without feeling that he was lowering and diminishing himself to do it? Why was Jesus willing to be whipped and beaten and tried? Imagine being spat upon and laughed at and manhandled by the very people you created and gave life to. Why was he willing to do that? It says in verse 3, he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He understood the context of this, that life is eternal and God is real and heaven is forever And he understood that as he is serving, he is blessing and honoring the one true God. And that the one true God will honor this service. He knew where he was going. Why was he able to do this? He was walking by faith. He knew. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. He was walking by faith. And so let me ask you, as you struggle with this Challenge, at least I assume you struggle like I do with this challenge to love people sacrificially like this. Do you trust God? If so, then love other people. There's no danger in it. There's nothing that you can lose. And you say, well, wait a second. There is danger in it. This is very dangerous because if I let myself be the kind of person who always serves, always gives, always gives up my rights, always gives someone else their way, if I become that kind of person, I'm going to be a doormat and people are going to walk all over me. I'm just going to open myself up for abuse. This is dangerous because people can take advantage. But that brings up an important point. Even agape love has boundaries this is important. Every good parent understands this already, right? That if you love your child, you set boundaries, right? God sets boundaries for us. He doesn't always give us exactly what we want. Aren't you glad? He doesn't always give us exactly what we want. He usually, not always, but he usually allows us to face the natural consequences of our terrible decisions, And he doesn't just rescue us out of them. Why? Because love has boundaries. Look at Philippians chapter 1. You were in Philippians 2 a minute ago. Go back to Philippians 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, In this I pray that your love, just what we're talking about, agape, that your agape may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? He's saying we're to abound in this kind of love and that that involves things like discernment. That when you're really loving people, you're doing it out of wisdom and knowledge and discernment. And oftentimes, it is not loving to allow a person to continue in the behavior that they are in. And sometimes love says, I'm going to hold up a boundary. As loving Christians, we've got to have wisdom and discernment. You don't just let your four-year-old play on the freeway, do you? What if he really, really, really wants to? What if he throws a fit if you say no? No. I mean, maybe for a little while, teach them a little lesson or something. But, but generally, no, we don't let them do what they want. We hold boundaries. And it's important for us to realize that even... As God loves us, he places boundaries in our lives. And even as we love others, we have to sometimes place boundaries in those relationships. So I'm not talking about being a floor floor mat. I'm not talking about being someone who is abused. I'm not talking about someone who is taken advantage of and beaten on. What I am talking about is being someone who is willing to sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God. That's love. So agape never asks us to become a doormat. Love has boundaries. Okay, before we close this discussion on love and sharing the Lord's Supper together, I want to get really practical here. I don't know if you're going to like this or not, but we're going to take a test. And um, it's not the kind of test where I find out what you know of what I've taught you. It's the kind of test where you ask yourself, the people who know me the best what would they say? The people who watch me when my guard is up and when my guard is down, the people I live with, the people who have known me a long time, the people who have watched my life, if I was to ask them these questions, what would they say? Question number one, am I harsh? What if I was to ask the people who know me the best, am I harsh? Look at, uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And I want you to look at verse 4 as we get into this definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 begins with these words, love is patient, love is kind. And so let's ask ourselves, am I harsh? The word patient there is not a word, there's, there's two specific words that are translated as patient from the Greek. One of them has to do with being patient with circumstances, Right? It's like waiting in a long line and not losing your patience, right? But that's not this word. This word has to do with being patient with people, which is a whole different level, isn't it? It's not just being patient with circumstances, it's being patient with people. People who annoy you. People who just got on your very last nerve. People who you are forced to work with Monday through Friday, eight hours a day, and you would never choose to spend one moment with this person if you didn't have to to get your paycheck. People who drive you nuts. Or people that you love, but they're still driving you nuts. The children who say, Mommy, are we almost there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? Bam! Now you're asleep. It will be better, right? What's your level of patience? Am I harsh? Am I abrasive? Is there something in my tone of voice? Am I sarcastic when I answer a question to make sure the person knows that was a really stupid question? Or am I patient when I'm annoyed, when I'm hurt, when I'm wronged, When someone disappoints me, do I strike out at them? Do I try to hurt them back? just like I was going to do on the freeway, slowing down in front of that lady. By my words, by my actions, by my body language, by my silence, am I trying to hurt people who've hurt me? Question number two. Ask yourself this, or ask your friends if you have the guts. Do I have to win? Do I have to win? Am I I a person who just has to get the best of everything. Look what it says in, at the second half of verse 4. After love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous, it does not brag, and it is not arrogant. So ask yourself this question honestly. Is it all about you in your world? Do you have to win? And I know we pass this off, we go, well, you know, I was just born competitive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about healthy competition. Do you have to win in a game? You're just playing a game with people. Does it really bother you when you don't win? Or how about this? In an argument, do you have to have the last word? Does it have to be absolutely clear to the person with whom you are arguing and anybody else who will listen that you are actually right and that person was wrong? Do I have to win? Do you go for the best thing available at the expense of other people? Last night, um, Christy and Shannon and I went out to dinner at uh, one of my favorite um, really really nice restaurants called In-N-Out Burger have you heard of it and so there I am carrying the the trays back to the table three burgers three things of fries and I sat them down and the first thing I noticed is that these don't all have the exact same amount of fries in them <laughs> who gets the bigger one is it you or is it the people you serve? Do you have to win? Do you make yourself look better than you are? Are you willing to pull somebody else down in order to prop yourself up? Next question. Am I self-centered? Look at verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. And it, does not, it is not provoked. It doesn't act Unbecomingly, that that, the word acting unbecomingly is often translated as rude. It is not rude or inappropriate. Have you ever noticed that the people that we tend to be the least considerate of and polite toward are the people we say we love the most? The people that we're most comfortable with, the people that we live with. Oh, it doesn't matter what they feel if I am rude or if I am disrespectful or whatever. Am I self-centered? Love does not seek its own. Jesus is such a great example of this, you guys. He serves us constantly, whether it's washing feet or going to the cross. His whole existence as a man on earth is about serving us, even though He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God who is great. Are you the center of your own universe? You experience life from behind your eyeballs, and that's how life is? Or do you recognize that there's a whole bunch of other people looking out at life from behind their eyeballs? And maybe you're not the center of the universe. Love goes out of its way to give others what they need rather than keep for, them, for itself. Here's another question for you. Are you enjoying the test so far? Here's another question. Do I have a short fuse? Look at uh, chapter, five, or chapter 13, verse 5. After it does not act unbecoming, it does not seek its own. It's not provoked, or in some translations, it's not angry or easily angered. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Do I have a short fuse? What does it take to get me mad? Do I keep a record of wrongs? Do I just let it build up inside of me and go, be, and then somebody does something that it might be a little bit inappropriate, it might be a little bit offensive, but it's the 63rd thing they've done, and I've got the record of all of them, and so it doesn't just feel like a little misstep. It feels like an avalanche, and I begin to brood. Now listen, don't let yourself off the hook if you're not a temper tantrum person. Some people explode, and they scream and yell, and they go, well, at least I got it out of the way. Is that good? No. But guess what else isn't good? If I let it become bitterness as it just churns in my heart and I let anger rule me. Do I have a short fuse? What does it take to make me mad? And what do you do when you do get upset? Next question. And this is an interesting one. Am I cynical? Look at verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Am I a person who expects the best of people and gives people the benefit of the doubt? Or have I had it up to here with people, and I know that people are going to act like people, and they're all a bunch of idiots anyway, and I am so sick of this? Ask yourself this. Boy, this is really hard. Ask yourself this. You walk into the DMV without an appointment, what do you expect to experience? Am I just going, these people, this is, they're just going to waste my time. What do, I, what do I think of people? Do I rejoice when someone else is blessed or do I rejoice when they fail? Am I willing to give the benefit of the doubt? Am I hopeful, not just for myself, but for them? And am I willing to endure even when they let me down? This is a big one for some of us because we can be cynical and we see that as a mark of greatness. And it's just arrogance. But it can really be grounded in selfishness and bitterness. Do you give people the benefit of the doubt or do you expect the worst? Love is simply this. You and me living like the sons and daughters of the king that the Bible says we are, and treating others as image bearers of God. That's love. And the great news is that because the love of Christ has been poured out into my life, the same kind of love can be poured through into the lives of other people. And so I ask you this on Valentine's Day. Are you ready to live the life of love? Or will you settle for a life as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal who just made noise and caused disruption but never blessed anybody.